911, what's the nature of your emergency? Welcome back to another episode of Tactical Living by Leo Warriors. I'm your host, Ashley Walton, and today's a little bit different because I did an interview with Mr. Mike Demo in our Facebook group, Police, Fire, Military, and Families, and I wanted to share it here with you today. So enjoy. Like we are talking about before we get started, my dog just got a good bill of health. So, you know, there's a lot of things in the world that, you know, might go one way or the other, but I'm happy as a clam. Good. That's awesome. I'm so glad to have you here. Before I introduce you, I do have to ask, why did you name your dog Elvis? So I named my dog Elvis and we can get a picture of him up later, but he's a Corgi Boston Terrier mix. So he's got like a three quarter snout and his lip will stick on his tooth like that sometimes. And he shakes his ass when he walks. So (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that my ex-wife wouldn't let me call him Reagan. So I love it. I love it. So for everyone watching and everyone listening, this is my good friend, Mr. Mike Demo, and he is a coach. He is also a financial expert. He is the host of a podcast called The Intentional Disruption, and he's also a decorated Marine Corps veteran with two tours and multiple award-winning consultant for the Fortune 100 firm that he is a financial expert in. And that's why I invited you to be on this show. And we're so honored to be sharing space with you. I know you're in the future. We're here in California and uh, you're a couple hours ahead of us. Yeah. It, it's like the same time, but we just perceive it differently. It's kind of, it's true. It's an odd it's thing. It's true. At the end yeah. of the day. Thank you so much for your service. You know, I I can't express the gratitude that I know Asha and I both feel towards service members just like yourself. So I really wanted to give some space for you to to thank you for that. So thank you. I appreciate it. And I mean, I've talked to Ashley about this before, but I mean, you operate under a much stricter ROE than I did. So, you know, Mm -hmm. God bless you for what you do. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. (laughs) And Dima, we talked about this really interesting topic. And you explained it that a broken mirror cannot properly reflect. And we're going to get into how that ties into PTS. But before we do, can you take us through a little bit about your origin story? Oh, wow. So where do we start? Um, I ended up in the Marine Corps because the Air Force didn't want me. It's kind of, there's a whole backstory behind that, um, that, you know, we and you've coached people through, and this is what ties into that broken mirror not being able to reflect properly. Like, had a lot of issues with my mom who suffered a lot of mental illness, and that that impacts you. So, it was one of those things where, as a kid, they have you going through therapy. And back in the '90s, if you're going through any sort of a therapy for that, you're not allowed to join the Air Force. Um, or any other branch for like two years. Mm-hmm. So I told the truth to the Air Force recruiter because with my GT scores being in the 140s, like any job in the military is yours. So they said, no, nah, this could be two years. Uh, come on back. And that wasn't my timeline. So I just went to the Marine Corps and didn't tell them any of that. And away we go. Um, got, got in. So I got into... Paris Island just after Thanksgiving in 2000, uh, graduated uh, February 23rd, 2001, which is really hard to think that there's people that are like in boot camp right now that weren't born when I went. So that kind of (laughs) hurts. As far as the job goes, uh, I thought I was going to be an air traffic controller uh, where I live in Connecticut. You're really close to like JFK, uh, LaGuardia. Like these are pretty good hundred plus thousand dollar jobs at 19. That sounded dope. Mm -hmm. Uh, Figured be reservist, do that. It'd be awesome. And I got to my unit and I still remember his name's Eric Frazier. Uh, I'm friends with him on Facebook still. He's the uh, staff sergeant in charge of what I would end up doing in the Marines. And I told him, I was like, hey, staff sergeant, I'm Mike Demo. I'm going to be one of your air traffic controllers. And he has a beaver dip in, just a complete horseshoe. <laughs> West Virginia as heck. Air traffic controller. 
Man, we ain't got none of them around here. <laughs> You're gonna be one of my air sport operators. And I'm like, yeah, cool, bro. Okay. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Whatever. Good morning, good morning to everybody messaging in. <laughs> yes, hello. Um, so why that matters. Uh air traffic control is done in Pensacola, Florida. And this will be close to your heart. Uh air support operations operator, which similar concept, uh, just no radar. So you're using a paper map and airplanes are going a couple hundred miles an hour. It's pretty cool. Is in 29 Palms, California, just about an hour south of Palm Springs. Marginal difference in the environment. Just marginal. Yeah. A little bit. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Huge difference. But I ended up very grateful that I was doing that job instead because air traffic control, you know, if you're just looking at a monitor, bloop, bloop, bloop. Maybe I'll see, I might be dating myself, but we've all seen the movie Airplane. Like you look at a little green screen, it bloops up, it's fine. So what my job in the military was, is basically a battle space manager. So I controlled airstrikes coming in, medevacs going out, resupply missions, convoy coverage, support, and being the nexus of information for the air side and the ground side so that we all worked cohesively. It's something only the Marine Corps does, uh, which is why when you hear blue on blue uh, type situations where we killed friendly troops, you hear about it with the Army, the Air Force, other countries. You don't really hear about it in the Marine Corps because we have very good control of our battle space, uh, which actually I guess we should start to talk a little bit about that because you'd asked me yesterday. So I graduated all my schools in June of 2001. I was a reservist because unless you actually have a war, there's not really a lot of aircraft flying around. You're not really dropping bombs on people. So it made sense to me. Well, why don't I just do it over the weekends? Cause these guys that are there all month, they only do it like four or five days a month. And if you're like an E1, E2, like your little man totem pole, that means they've got a lot of free time to have you go do other stuff. That's not going to be fun. And that just didn't line up with my agenda. I figured I'd go to school, become an officer, do this, all this cool stuff. I start school uh, end of August 2001. And would you believe it? Two weeks later, the towers fell. Wow. Yeah. You know, I wasn't one of those people I joined because the Marine Corps doesn't give you anything to join, really. Mm-hmm. Um where it's like, oh, I'm going to get money for school and they're going to take care of this. No, that's not why I was joining. You know, I was joining, you know, honor, courage, commitment, and I wanted to serve. And if I was going to do it and the Air Force didn't want me anyway, I might as well do it with the best people possible. Here we go. Yeah. And you got a Semper Fi brother in the comments here. Uh, I know you can't see that. Uh, actually, I could. I just haven't used uh, your software yet. So <laughs> <laughs> my bad. <laughs> so I'm still, get, still getting used to it. Dima, take us through that moment then when 9-11 came. What did your your picture look like? So where I live in Connecticut, we're an hour away from Midtown. Uh, If you go half an hour south from where I was, you're looking over Long Island Sound and you actually see the smoke. Like there's actually memorials because most of the people that work in the city live in Connecticut. That's you know, why our taxes aren't even higher, I guess. And those people would take the train into work all the time. And it's just weird because like, I'd never even been to the World Trade Center. Uh, actually, the only time that I've been there in my entire life is the day we killed bin Laden. And I was actually on Fox and all these other crazy places. It was, it was nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was just... I had gotten to my first class and, you know, everyone's talking, this is 2001. There's no internet really. Yeah. But it's on TV. Wow. Like a plane hit. Okay. Well, you know, kind of crazy, but things happen. And I remember I was in the student union and they had it up on TV and I saw right when the second one hit and I don't know if we're allowed to cuss and I was like, oh, fuck. Pardon my French if I'm not allowed to do that. To your space. Yeah. It, and it was nuts because like it was at that moment. I was like, all right, well, I'm not going to be home very much longer. So I skipped the rest of the classes that day. 
because I knew that it didn't much matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was game time. It was you know time to get ready. Uh, we got you know the calls from the unit. You know, just hey, make sure you've got all your gear put together and be ready to go. Um, I then proceeded to at ten o'clock in the morning have myself a beer. Basically, it was like all right, this didn't go the way that I thought it would go. Mm-hmm. Um, but it redoubled my desire to be really good at my job, um, even as a you know nineteen year old, because I knew that it was going to matter what I was able to do with the Marines because they don't, they don't send the coast guard first. Like they send us first. And if somebody wants to, you know, start something, we're going to give them something. So that, that was 2001 for me. Uh, we had some additional exercises that we would do get ready. Uh, but you know, we didn't kick off until 2003 and we were doing all the secure briefings to let everyone know here's what's happening. There's a lot of stuff behind the scenes that doesn't make it into the news. So I had a really good picture of what was going on. Um, And then they're like, hey, we're going to be kicking off Iraq. It's like, yeah, pick me, coach. Coach, pick me. But we had more senior people that they selected because the reserves you fill in and you supplement the active duty side. And I remember being pissed because like, all right, well, it's time to go get some. And I, you know, my, I've got room in my pack. Let's go get some. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's now we're going to take these guys. Cause you know, it was probably a maturity thing where, you know, perception and everything like these people are a little bit older, so they'll be better at it. Uh, and that pissed me off. So I worked even harder and from the time, so that was March of 03, somewhere in that range, till when they asked for the next round of volunteers to go, I'd been promoted to corporal. And I'd moved from an operator, like just listening to either the um, ground side putting in requests or the air side saying, hey, we've got this F-18 that's going to be up in 15 minutes or whatever our status board would look like, uh, I was able to move into being the crew chief now i've got my hands and visibility on the entire thing as a business owner it's going from being so entrenched in the day-to-day to to being able to stand back and strategically look at what the the operation is going to be Mm -hmm. and that was my job i'd brief generals on what's going on in their airspace at let's see so that's 2004 so i was 22 so yeah um, we got the vol- got to be volunteered to, uh, go to Iraq for OAF 2.2, raised my hand again and said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going like, I'm, I'm just going like, we're going to do this this time. And they agreed. And in the workup for that, uh, I learned one of the most important skills, which is to be able to pull back and do that 50,000 foot view. Where I am, because it's the nexus of information, it's also where all the officers and everybody wants to kind of hang out inside of our little tent and, you know, just get situational awareness for what's going on. And 22 years old, you know, there's majors, lieutenant colonels all talking in the background. Well, I can't hear my crew. Like on, this is my main ear. I've got one radio net here. I've got four over here. So I need to be able to listen to five different nets simultaneously so I can see what's going on while looking at the board and I can't do it. And I'm getting frustrated. And a captain that was running the training asked me, he's like, Hey, can you hear anything right now? No. What are you going to do about it? I don't know. They're officers. Like whose tent is this? Mine. Well, get in the gout. Like I I can do that. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Dude, this is your command system. People die if you're not in control. Get them out. So I kicked about 10, 15, you know, high-ranking officers back into the desert in the middle of Arizona because my people need to be able to operate. And it taught me the lesson to find that place of calm, even when there's a lot going on, which really mattered when we did get to an Iraq, which uh, I got there end of July 2004, 
uh, is when I stepped into Kuwait and then took the C-130 up to uh, Al-Assad Air Base, which, by the way, y'all might live in a desert. Mm-mm. Mm. Mm-mm. 140 degrees. They've got the two engines on the C-130, so blowing exhaust back on you. It's noon, blacktop, you're in body armor. Um, it's cute. Every green matches. We're all wearing green. Um, <laughs> well, tan. And you've got the two duffel bags, your main rock. It's about... 150, 200 pounds of gear. And it's a half mile walk to the um, check-in, which that doesn't sound like a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. So essentially you're literally walking into hell. And Mm -hmm. I want to make mention of a comment that we got here. It says not everyone gets the mindset that the military members want to deploy. Can you talk a little bit about your mindset and work? working as much as you did to be able to go into battle and to fight and then to get, you know, we're going to backtrack for a second, but to get that feeling of like, what the fuck? Like I I work so hard and now I don't even get to go and fight. And that time span between when you actually were deployed and went to Iraq. And it's, it was hard because there are people that I knew I was more capable then, but they'd been there longer. So they were more qualified. And in your everyday life, you know, if you're in corporate, world like I am now, like you see that happen where they don't pick necessarily the most qualified person. They pick the most connected person or something Mm -hmm. like that. And from my frame of mind, this isn't everybody, um, especially like people that join because they're joining for free college. If that's your key motivator to do something is something that's not intrinsically tied with what you do every day, there's a disconnect. Like it it doesn't work and you're not going to have a great experience because you're not living in your purpose. I joined and then especially when I understood my job better, I wanted to be where the fight was because I had this maybe narcissistic view that I'd be better at helping other people live than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And I truly see that in the first responder realm too. Like we're always ready to go. Like yeah. when you have an active shooter scenario, you have any type of situation, even though it's not long-term as a deployment as yourself, we're like, you know what? We want to be the first ones there. We want to be the first to control that scene. Cause we want to be the first to help. Yeah. You don't have an M4 in the back of your car for, you know, looks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And and you have you can see the shift in people where they're not truly there to help. They're here to collect that paycheck. They're mm-hmm. here to get the great retirement, whatever it may be. And and it's that shift of you can tell who's really like, you know what, let me help these people compared to, well, let me get there safe. Let me take my time and evaluate everything before we go in to take down this shooter. Yeah. And that's the exact same for military. Well, and I won't say that I'm a like burger puller. Um, you know, in the Marines, they call us Pogue, person other than grunt. And I tell them that's very true. But have you seen how much bigger a 500 pound bomb is than a 556 shell? Mm hmm. Yeah. You know, that. But it comes back to like you're talking about, Clint, where if you're in it for the right reason, you know, no, I want to be forward deployed. I want to be at the nexus of what's happening because that's what I'm here for. Like, what's the point of having an implement if you're not using it? It doesn't make sense. And, you know, that ties back into when we got to Iraq, actually. Because as a reservist, you're treated as a second-class citizen. Um, just, you know, oh, what do you know? Like the gear that the active duty had was all modern. I'd never seen it before. Our stuff was Vietnam era. Mm-hmm. So it took a whomping two weeks to get caught up to everything that they knew. But we'll put that to the side. <laughs> but the only reason that was possible was because I spent as much time studying the craft as they did, even though they were active duty. Not everybody does that. Mm-hmm. But what ended up happening is, so I was doing radio relay essentially out of the back of a C-130, um, controlling out towards the Syrian border. So I guess I should backtrack a little bit. 
um, Western Iraq and Bar Province was given to the Marines. They said, hey, this is your circus. Yeah, have some fun. So basically Fallujah to the Syrian border, that, that's our airspace. We own everything there. Well, from where the headquarters was in Ramadi, just 20 miles away from Fallujah to the Syrian border, that's beyond like radio relay capability just from the ground. So you need somebody up there just to make sure that everything's connected. I started off there, and then two weeks later, they realized one of their active duty crew chiefs wasn't as good as me, potentially, and they need another body down at the main cell. So I took a helicopter over. And start off like, you know, just like when you talk about being, you know, a boot cop where, you know, you're just learning the ropes, you're nothing. And then you work your way up, work your way up, work your way up, which I know you've been doing, by the way. Mm-hmm. And it was not much different. A couple of weeks, I was promoted to be the crew chief. And the reason for it was because when things get hectic, if you know your fundamentals, time slows down. You might have noticed this when you're doing, like if you're doing searching or anything, mm-hmm. everything slows down, detail gets a little bit crisper, and you get into the zone. Well, the officer in charge of that cell was a yeller. He'd freak out, he'd get panicky, he'd speed up his tempo. And I controlled the Battle of Fallujah, for example, November 04. We have 120 aircraft up over a 30-mile radius, stacked every 1,000 feet from 10,000 to 35,000, plus helicopter shooting in from the sides, plus two AC-130 spinning and just dropping everything, plus artillery, plus mortars. Um, And then we also have like the rest of our area that we have to control. Mm -hmm. And this was the cadence of my voice. This is the volume of my voice. Doesn't change. That that had to have taken a lot to maintain your composure like that. I mean, I'm I got anxious just hearing everything that you're describing going on all at once. And for you to be able to maintain your composure like that, what what did you practice or what was it that helped you to do that? Well, this is where it comes back to that can't properly reflect. Um, realizing that people will die if I don't do it is a pretty good motivator. Um, I had um, up in northern Iraq, <sighs> medevacs are never good. Um, you know, there's the golden hour. Uh, as a first responder, you might have heard of that too. And our medevac birds for the Marine Corps are CH-46s from Vietnam. Um, they're not fast. They're slow. They have no technology. So we use the Air Force Blackhawks, um, but it's a hot zone. So we have our AH-1 Cobras, our attack helicopters that'll go with them. Mm-hmm. And we had this guy that got, it was Habania. Um, he got shot in the head. And it's winter. There's a little bit of fog. And it's kind of an active shooting area. So we're able to get normally for somewhere within, say, 30 miles of, you know, where we were mostly clustered, we could medevac somebody out, excuse me, 20 minutes. We can have them on a bird. Like, you're not getting an ambulance faster than that. Mm-hmm. So this guy was up further north, and it was about a 25-minute flight just to get there. And they got there. And the Air Force pilot wouldn't touch down. Said it was too hot. He couldn't see properly. And at that point, I'd move over to an officer billet where I was actually controlling the helicopters. And I could hear the Marine Corps pilot talking to the Air Force pilot, pleading with him. No, I'll guide you in. It's fine. We it's, This is safe. We can do it. We're going to be okay. Come on. We just need to touch down. Guy wouldn't do it. Fly all the way back to Al-Assad, 20 minutes. And I made a call to the uh, guy that, the colonel that's in charge. Mind you, as a corporal. Like, sir, I need your your 46 up now. This is not a medevac bird normally. They threw a corpsman in there. They took a regular helicopter, turned into a medevac bird, flew it up there. This no-technology plane drops through the fog, drops through the firefight, picks up the guy, 
and is bringing them all the way across over towards uh, Balad, uh, north of Baghdad. And the guy dies five minutes outside of the base. Wow. So talking about that reflecting mirror thing. There's nothing I could have done about that. Unless there was. So that was the first little chink in the broken mirror. Um, the other one was right around the time we had the first election for Iraqis, which they had a, like 70% turnout. So for all the people on social media that are complaining about who's in charge, who's not in charge, that's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> These people, like we literally had to make sure that they didn't get suicide vested, like that they didn't get mortared and they still came out to vote. So in pursuit of that, um, we had a reservist infantry unit that was going down to secure a place called Korean village to make sure that the polls were safe for these people to vote for the first time, basically since Saddam had gotten to power like about 30 years ago. Hmm. And, you know, you're flying nape of the earth because, you know, you don't want to have somebody shoot rockets at you. It's not fun. And in the fog, the pilot just, I don't know what happened. He didn't see, didn't know, but he smacked into the side of a mountain. And 34 people dead. Just that. There's four things basically that will, on my list, because I was doing the overnight, where they wake up General Natansky, a three-star. That, that qualifies. Um, moved a couple billion dollars worth of assets to try to see what's happening, where are they, and I mean, that's something that I still think about, you know, all those people and, you know, to the point that you'd asked me about yesterday with this, since we're kind of in it, there's some people where that wouldn't make as much of an impact. Um, I guess like, Hey, there's nothing I could do, but me at 22, it's like, Jesus, like these people, like they're never coming back to their families. Like they have kids. I don't have kids. Like, but these people, they have kids, they have families. Like, why are they dead? Why not me? Like, I, I'll trade. Like, me for 30 of them, it's, it's not even a question. And, you know, one of my good friends, uh, Steve Jones, he runs a charity called the Warrior Art Room, where he helps veterans move through some of these issues uh, using art. You know, I do it more in the verbal speaking realm. He had. He was actually on the other side of the radio. Um, he was out towards where the plane crashed, and he heard it too. He was on the same time as me. We didn't know this for like 10 years. Um, when we reconnected about two, three years ago, we were just you know talking about things, and both of us had that as one of the biggest things that impacted us. It was nuts. like Because it wasn't his aircraft. It wasn't anything he was doing, but he heard it all happen. And it impacted him too. And why that impacts for people a lot is the ability to reflect. And when you've got things in your past that you haven't dealt with, it makes it a lot harder because it's not just an analysis of here's what happened. You're bringing in all the parts and pieces of your life. Like my mom with you know, her being bipolar and having some of her issues with that from when she was a kid. And, you know, for those at home, this is actually how me and Ashley met is through a mutual coach that we had so that I could work through some of this stuff. And it, I mean, geez, we're talking about 20 oh, or 2004. It's almost 2020. And if you don't handle it, it doesn't just go away. And that was one of the biggest things for me. And like, I've learned a lot about what happened. Like, for example, I got a really bad night of sleep because we sold operations tempo. So I didn't get a night's sleep or morning's sleep because I was on the night shift. Like, I didn't get a chance to let my brain process overnight and properly put things in their places. Yeah. And that's a huge thing for a, a lot of veterans is one, and even first responders, like if you didn't get a good night's sleep the day that that happened, it's stuck in your frontal lobe. Your body doesn't know how to process it. They don't know where to put it. So unless you do something to get it back there, you're stuck and it's going to cycle. 
Yeah. And I, I love the way that you just laid that out and the analogy of that demo. And I, I'm so honored that you're, you're willing to share such a raw and vulnerable story with us, because I know this is something that so many military service members and first responders can resonate with because there are constant fight or flight responses that are triggered over and over and over again. And there's never that downtime. And I loved how you explained that if you don't have that restful night's sleep, on the day that the event happened, that that could have a major impact. And going back to the topic of the broken mirror, you made mention twice that there's these like two little shatters inside of the mirror. So how does somebody find that that reflection is really self-reflection in themselves? Not that this is a plant or a commercial, but one of the things that I know is I'm 37 years old. If I haven't figured out how to handle something by now, maybe I should ask somebody else. They might have something to do with it. So it's really getting that other person. Like I hired a coach. That's what I did. I'd gone through the VA process for better part of 10 years. Mind you, that was like three appointments because that's what it takes with the VA. But like I've, I'd gone through like the civilian side of things. I'd gone through the counselors the VA would recommend. And what it came down to is talking with some of my buddies, but that just becomes a commiseration level. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if you're at the department and something happened at the department, like you guys will talk about it. But once you've done that, like you come to some sort of a piece, but that just gets you back to where you were. That's not a progression point forward. You know, it's one of the weird things like World War II, these guys got that boat ride all the way back from Europe, all the way back from Asia. And that gave them time to process. Like we took flights like Mm -hmm. 10 hours later, I'm out of a desert and I'm back in Connecticut. It's weird. And with that expectation, okay, start living your life again. Yeah. Bye. Like Mm -hmm. see you in four days, have fun on leave. Yeah. Like it's absolutely mind boggling when you think about it. It's like, uh, you know, the phrase road hard and put away wet. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just, but that's why I needed a coach, you know? And like, I personally threw a drinking bros, um, listen to their podcast. Like, I don't know how I stumbled across it. Um, But that probably saved me because I was in a really bad place. Um, Like just being hammered every night, uh, not doing any exercise whatsoever, just, basically burning it on both ends. Um, you know, in a, in a part two, we can talk about my second deployment, but it's just, I knew that I didn't have the skills that I needed. And I knew that I didn't want to wake up the same way every single day for the rest of my life. Like it wasn't edifying to me. It wasn't creating a better life for myself, for others. And it was just, the same thing on repeat and that just wasn't what I wanted to have. Yeah. And to the comment that you had there, froaching, uh, friend coaching, it is way different <laughs> than a professional coach. I love um, that. I'm going to use that term now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you better, I don't see a trademark next to it. Right. I no, okay. think we're good to use it. <laughs> so Demo, can you, can you take us through what the time frame was from your first deployment to your second one? So I got back uh, February of 05 from Iraq. Um, I was getting ready. So I ended up getting off orders in June of 05, mm-hmm. which talked about transition because there's no programs for reservists when they come back. It's like there's no job. There's no like, well, if you go back to school. There's no like GI Bill where it actually pays enough money for you. Um, so I started to go back to school and, realized I didn't like it. Um, I couldn't find a job that paid, you know, they say a living wage nowadays, but like I couldn't find anything. So I ended up opening a franchise office for a company called Cutco. Uh, They sell kitchen knives and doing pretty well with that. And we got the next call to do another deployment in the fall of 06. Hmm. And I was you know, 2000, 2006, technically it's a six and two contract. So eight total years, six doing reservists and drill, two years of just, they can call you back. 
So I was at the end of that. Um, they were deploying in uh, around, it was actually just before my birthday in 07. Uh, I'm a March baby. So I said, look, I'm the platoon sergeant at this point. Like they've got a meritorious staff package they're putting together for me for another promotion. Uh, once I'm done with school, they have me set up for this 18 month program to move into being a commissioned officer. And then, yeah. So they said, Hey, you don't have to go on this deployment. It's like, well, you're sending my entire section. I'm, I'm going with them. And that ended up being the biggest Charlie Fox sort of a deployment I've ever seen. Um, Non-combat zone, uh, Djibouti. It's a real country. I was going to wear the shirt and then I realized that was kind of corny. But figured just for giggles. I'm really curious because I can't imagine what it would be like to have the accolades and the skills that were developed over that time of being deployed for the first time and then coming home and thinking like, okay, like somebody is bound to hire me. Right. And I know you and I have talked before about the difficulty that so many veterans have trying to, to reintegrate back into civilian life and not having that happen for you. And then, you know, you like, it's, it's really not funny and I don't mean this in a funny way, but to think of someone of your stature, like going and selling fucking knives. Like, I bet you that's the last thing in the world you thought you would be doing. Can you talk to us about how it felt for you to be deployed again? What was going through your mind? So there's two parts. The uh, knives are actually the more noble one. Um, how about being a, uh, a war zone veteran working at freaking Hallmark for seven seventy five an hour? Stacking Forgot, about babies. Forgot about that. Yeah. Get, at least we had hunting knives, too. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Jesus. Like it, uh, it's crazy. It's just, oh, it sizzles my blood that there isn't something better in place for that very thing. Yeah. So there's a couple problems. So, and I guess I'll just say, so that Fortune 100 company I work for is Prudential. I'm on the VetNet executive board. Like I'm the only non-director, non-VP, non-whatever that does it. And the reason I did is because of what a raw deal we get in transition because there's like i went to the government's job skills training the problem is the government has never created a job so what the hell do they know yeah they don't. like i went there and it's like oh well here's your resume workshop and it was just here's how to use microsoft word it's like no the other problem is like for my job um that military occupational specialty mos it's uh 7242 7242 if you put that in the little skills finder, it says no civilian equivalent. So I'm 22 coming out of Iraq. I have no degree, which evidently you need a degree. Like I couldn't get a job in logistics. Like I managed a war. I managed billions of dollars in assets in that war. I can't work at UPS. Like nothing. But my job is something that's listed as no civilian equivalent. Insane. So, was there excitement then surround apart from the camaraderie and then getting to rejoin everybody? Was there excitement deploying again for you? With so, on the second one, we were doing a backfill mission. So, Djibouti is, um, I call it, well, I'll use armpit, but between Ethiopia and Somalia, um, I've used other orifices to describe it as well. I'm sure you have. <laughs> <laughs> and we were putting together a ad hoc unit and these were people that were the ultimate in reserve. It's like they'd never deployed. They'd been in for like 17, 18 years. They didn't know how things had been run like in a real environment. So they took our unit and it was six different people or groups that were brought together to make one. And instead of keeping cohesiveness, like my operations section would have created an entire platoon, but they broke us up into six different platoons. That was just the tip of the iceberg for many things that went wrong. Uh, and that's actually the uh, deployment that led to me being out of the Marine Corps with a misdiagnosis of uh, bipolar. Hmm. Hmm. Which, that, like I said, that's a whole nother story. Yeah. Um, back in 07, they didn't do things like PTSD. They didn't, you know, no, no. They had literally a flip chart 
Ashley isn't like a flip, like flow chart box diagram. Did you see somebody die? And see, I heard them die. Like I was controlling them as they burned into the dirt at 150 miles an hour. Did you, this happened, did this happen? And it's just that linear flow chart. They don't have any context behind it. So like, oh no, that's not the issue. Yeah, but I figured after that second deployment with some of the other things that had happened, like I was getting pretty angry because like integrity matters. And there were some things where people almost died on a non-combat deployment because of poor leadership Mm. and a lack of integrity inside of leadership. So, you know, they say, if you, you know, that, oh, if you see something, say something. I raised my hand and was like, hey, I need to talk to somebody. And the flow chart says, oh, well, you don't have PTS or any of this. So it's got to be this other thing. Well, your mom has this history. And I remember the, to this day, like the guy that I'm talking to is in Newport Hospital up in Rhode Island. A doctor named Mike something or another. I figured his name Mike. He couldn't be that bad. Mm-hmm. And he was like, hey, you know, I want to try something with you. You know, I want you to try this medication to see if that helps calm me down and like make things, you know, better. Turns out it was something called a bupurian, which I had no idea what that was. I was like, dude, if you think, you know, open book, like I'm here to get better so I can, like, I've got my staff, meritorious staff sergeant package, like ready, my unit's about to put it in. Like, I've got one more semester before we can get me into the officer candidate pipeline. Whatever we need to fix, do it so that we can get this thing moving. And turns out there's a rule if you're taking that particular medication that qualifies you as bipolar, and that is a termination inside of the Marine Corps. You are not able to serve. So Mm -hmm. I went to go talk to this Navy captain. She was... It was like job of the hut with a white lab coat is disgusting. <laughs> and she was like, all right, well, so, you know, Dr. Mike had said that he, you know, saw, you know, you're feeling this way and wants to try in this medication. So um, need you to sign here. Okay, cool. Now, because you've signed here, um, you're disqualified from service. Wow. No parade, like no little shadow box, but like, Hey, yeah, from all your decorations from Iraq when you were crew chief, like, no, you just, you have to sign out of your unit. Like, go back to Massachusetts and sign out. That was it. That day, you're gone. What was going through your mind? What the fuck? <laughs> right, I, it, 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 I mean, to this day, I'm like, wait, What? Because the VAs come back and like they've done the actual like work behind it and like mm. there's no you're not bipolar at all, like, but I mean the good news is uh, you can't sue the government for malpractice. So that's yeah. great news. So mm-hmm. you go to the doctor seeking help to make sure you're in the utmost mental health mm-hmm. peak of the state that you can be. They decide to give you this medication. You're on board. Like, do whatever I can. I just need to go serve. I need to be mm-hmm. as as balanced as I can be. Yeah, you get this right. medication. You're following their guidelines. There's no preface against whatever it is that they're giving you and what the aftermath will look like. Mm-hmm. You go along with the flow because you're just trying to be the best you that you can be. And then you're asked to sign a paper and then fuck, your identity just changed. Yep, 25 years old. So you go home. And what happens? <laughs> um, well, I move back in with my stepmom and my two brothers start to be more of a dad for them because like they'd split up. So did that one of my brothers is five years younger than me. One's 10 years younger than me. The 10 year younger one, he's actually a corporal in the Marines. He's over in Japan right now and just figure your shit out, mm-hmm. you know? Okay, start to go back to school. I hate school. Like, I'm not learning anything. It's not like I want to be in a job. I want to be productive. And so I ended up uh, going back into running an office with Cutco for a couple of years. Um, and that's where part of my my coaching practice really dig in. Because 
as a platoon sergeant, even when I was a corporal, I was a mentor to my Marines. And the thing with Cutco is these are, you know, people right out of high school, early in college, and you're teaching them real life skills, teaching them goal setting, teaching them accountability, and you're learning servant leadership. And that was a model that I had, like I said, I never really raised my voice because if you're raising your voice, you're not communicating. That's you know, usually how that works. So I was able to guide these young people to be successful. And like, I got paid, I got paid pretty well, but it was more the tangible result that they were having. And like, I could feel that purpose again. The only problem was I had all this other crap from my broken mirror that I hadn't put back together yet. So that office failed eventually, not because of like the program and what needs to happen, but because I wasn't in a place where I could do it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. What were some of the indicators for you? Um, feeling entirely stressed out, like just being absolutely burnt out, starting to get irritable. Um, just the anxiety every day was massive and just like the nervousness and like that weight that you feel on your chest and you just like, you can't breathe. Like I was working seven in the morning till 10 o'clock at night, six days a week. And then a half day on Sunday, Hmm. just running, trying to get things moving. Cause I knew if all I need to do is get this next thing and then I can go from the 50 foot view up to the 50,000 foot view and I'll be good. But I just couldn't get the lift off. And it's because I couldn't genuinely engage the way that I wanted to. I was trying to be the facade of me instead of being the genuine me. And that divergence really matters. You know, if you're not authentic, people can tell, even if you're well-intentioned. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So Dimo, apart from the coaching, what were some of the things that you personally tried that were effective for you to get out of that? Well, I mean, I need to get back on it, but you know, more of the exercise, um, a lot of my podcasts are actually from outdoors. So just whether it's winter or whenever, just getting out into nature. I'm not a religious person. Um, I think they're really cool stories. Like they're good fables with good morals, but they don't connect to me. But when I'm in nature, I can feel connected and recenter myself. And that's for a lot of veterans. What I found is either religion or being in nature, but feeling a part of something greater, once again, some sort of a community. Mm-hmm. That's been the biggest thing. Um, not being a Dirt bag also helps. Like you can say dick. Well, no dirt bag in this case, like not um, womanizing, not drinking as much, not, you know, having all these other chemical vices, you know, help get to a point of clarity. Once again, if the mirror is broken, you can't see through it properly. So it's just rebuilding all the parts and pieces so that you can properly reflect on what it is that has happened and be able to see where you want to go next. Yeah. And I, I love that. That's beautiful. And before we wrap this up, Demo, is, is there any question that we haven't asked you? Um, well, it's hard to say, cause we've known each other for a while now. <laughs> so I mean, Clint, I, I'm just sitting back right now, listening to your story and, and I'm, it resonates so deeply with me, even though I wasn't in the military, like I, I wish I could go back and, and do that service, but it's something I look at as a first responder. I see so many of those truths coming through for myself, you know, that weight on your chest, you, you get misdiagnosed with having that bipolar and, and, and it, I know that resonates with so many people as well as that label that's mm-hmm. being put on us, of uh, whether it's fucking right or not, they're putting that label on us and it completely turns your life upside down. And that's, what's so crazy about society as a whole. We have to have some type of label label Mm -hmm. and just your, your story is inspiring to see 
where you came from and what you did at such an early late age in your life. From 19 to 25, you served our country. You gave so much. And for the government pretty much to say, fuck you afterwards, that sucks. And that's not how we should be handling and treating our veterans and our service members. You're not wrong about that. Um, you know, it's one of those things where I've been so fired up years ago, like politically, because like having defended the Constitution of the United States, yada yada, like, and everything that I've seen in the real world, which is not America, like, see people taking everything for granted and then like saying, "Oh, well, this is bad," and it's like, girlfriend, you have no idea. Mm-hmm. Really, really, like, you have no idea how good we have it, and relativism you know you're never going to be happy because you can't appreciate what you have and yeah it's it's one of those things where you know it creates an understanding big picture of how great everything can be and it makes it just that much more frustrating because like you know clint for you for your community like you police it you know that there's a lot of good there and then you'll see on the news something bad happens and oh this is a terrible place like no you have no idea like a lot of people don't have that perspective of having been somewhere outside of the country that isn't a resort mm-hmm. to be able yeah. to appreciate what they have. Yeah. To go down into the slums or go down into not even the slums, just the typical life of a day-to-day person in that third world country yeah. that they don't know any different. Yeah. Yeah. Or like that you is- posted about Morocco or whatever it was being in a mm-hmm. tent. And it's like, that was a pretty glamorous existence you had there that night. <laughs> Oh, it, yeah. it gave us such such a humbling experience, though, because we we did go into someone's home who their home to them was a tent in the middle of the Sahara Desert. And I think mm-hmm. it's so important, especially as Americans, we become so desensitized to everything that we see on TV and on our phones, on our laptops. And sorry about the telephone. <laughs> and it's important for us to be able to know that there is something. I, I love what you just said, like the real world is in America. Like there is something much more expansive than just what we see on our homeland. And Demo, apart from people being able to search the Intentional Disruption podcast, how else can people get a hold of you? Right now at USMC3782, that's my personal um, Instagram. Um, it's the easier way to get me. I'm going back through my Coach underscore Mike underscore Demo. So I just saw somebody said they got it. I guess they got the phone. (laughs) Um, It's pretty dope. So that's coming back up. I've got about 10, 15 episodes that are pretty much ready to go. And it's, we were talking about, I've got my first baby on the way coming up in May. And I'm actually in the process. Congratulations, by the way. That's so exciting for you. Figures about time, right? (laughs) (laughs) so doing that uh getting my uh this house actually ready to sell so we can get uh lauren closer to where she works um try to cut that commute down on her so i've got pretty much all that handled so i can get back to doing what i'm passionate about not just the stuff that i'm required to do as an adult Mm-hmm. Love it. And Dima, we're friends. I know this won't be the last time that we have you here on Alive. And I just want to truly thank you. Thank your brother. Thank everybody who's listening, who has served our country and served us on a personal level. We are so grateful to have shared time with you. And I love you deeply. I can't wait to see your little baby. Yep. And we will talk to you next time. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Thank you. Bye.